Outspoken, episode 13. The 2018 election is over. The nation breathes a sigh of relief. No more political ads, mailers in one's box, or daily poll tracking. At least for a few months, anyway. The big news, of course, is that the Democrats took over the House, winning 40 seats and providing the country with a party split in Congress, as the Republicans retained control of the Senate. At the state level, the Democrats also made significant gains, winning several state houses. As for California, it turned bluer than ever. Once all the votes had finally been counted, Orange County, fortress of conservatism for decades, had flipped its congressional representation over to the Democrats. To get some perspective on all this, I sat down with the DeGroff Center director, Natalie Fusakis, our political historian, to mull the results and get an update on her ongoing Women, Politics, and Activism Oral and Public History Project. And along the way, we'll hear from some of the narrators who have contributed to that project. I'm here with Dr. Natalie Fusakis, who is Professor of History here at Cal State Fullerton and Director of the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. She's also our political expert. She covers in her scholarship grassroots activism and politics. Welcome back to Outspoken, Natalie Pusakis. Thank you so much. Last time we talked, in fact, several times we've talked on this podcast, you've had this ongoing project, Women, Politics, and Activism, and it's taking some interesting turns. Could you give us an update on what's on tap? Uh, yes. So we've wrapped up the majority of the oral histories that we um, were completing as part of the Haynes Foundation grant, and most of them are online in our WPPA archive, archival site so people can listen to them. Uh, but I'm still having my students in my courses record women who are uh, grassroots activists and in politics. And um, we are starting to look forward to an exhibition in uh, that is going to open at the Fullerton Arboretum in um, end of August or early September of 2020 that will uh, look at the last 100 years of women's activism. And that's a significant milestone. It is. It is coinciding with the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. And the idea is to really look at what kind of contributions have women made uh, locally and across the state uh, since they got the vote in 2020, I mean, 1920. Right. 19th Amendment in 1920. 19. I always I mix them up. Uh, you also are hoping, I think, that the rest of the state will get a look at this. Yes, so, right? we are working right now to find a second and possibly a third location um, in Sacramento, Los Angeles, or um, even Santa Barbara. Right, right. Um, that brings us to politics, and it's been a big year politically. We just got through the midterm elections. Lots of excitement, lots of interest, lots of passions on all sides. Um, and there's been a lot of talk, both before the election and in the immediate aftermath, that this is some kind of year of the woman. And I have a little bit of a problem with the term year of, a year of the woman because it, it seems to make it exceptional that women are involved in politics. And yet, I guess the argument could be made that 
In fact, there was a great deal of participation. What did you see in the lead-up to the election, and how would that define some kind of electoral year of the woman for you? Well, I think that, um, so first of all, when people start talking about the year of the woman, they're thinking back to 1992, which was dubbed the year of the woman in which, um, on the heels of the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas uh, hearings in 1991, and, and a mass for then a mass number of women uh, running for office, that uh, women increased their numbers significantly um, in Congress, significantly being from almost nothing to, so in the Senate, they went from two to six. um, And I can't remember the exact congressional, but I'm pretty sure it it, uh, doubled or tripled as well. Um, And so, but I, you know, historians still even talk about that, whether that was really a year of the woman um, I think for this year, the reasons why, problematic as the term is, that it has been thrown around and discussed in newspaper articles, year of the woman, question mark, uh, in what ways was this year of the woman? A couple things. One, uh, everyone would agree that since uh, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in 2016, that it ignited something amongst uh, a certain group of American women who have gotten politically engaged in ways that they were never before. Um, first example would be the Women's March that happened in uh, January 2017, followed up even with a, a very significant Women's March another year later. Um, the numbers were smaller, but still very, very significant. Uh, but also that the you know number of women who ran for office in primaries, while they might not have advanced out of the primary, was at a record high. Um, Emily's list, uh, bef- leading up to 2016, I think they said they had had 900 women um, ask about training to run for office. And since Trump was elected, they've had 42,000 women um, reaching out to their office for political training. Um, and then I think the, the reality is we did get more women in Congress than we've ever had before. Um, We'll have over 100 women in the House of Representatives for the first time. They'll be 23% of the House. And um, with the win of Cindy Hyde-Smith yesterday, the Senate will have 24 women for the first time. So, But it's by no means a parity, right? We need to double those numbers to get close to half and close to being sort of um, well-represented as a gender. But a lot of those... um, elections and Democrats in general winning had to do with women being on the ground, canvassing, writing postcards, um, phone banking, text banking, um, just armies of women um, going out to reach out to voters to make sure they got out. And I think that you, you could look at Orange County locally to say that this is one of the places where that really happened as well. And this is something that your students are even discovering. Yeah, my students, um, both by their own interests, you know, really wanted to um, interview women who had gotten involved in the Me Too movement, um, which really came on the scene in 2017, fall of 2017, um, and really think about what that meant for women who were then getting engaged in politics. I had a student who interviewed a woman who had been politically engaged, but not really politically engaged until... um, this last election, and really she spent a lot of time talking about the ways that her life has changed since uh, Donald Trump became president. And I think there's a lot of stories out there like that. 
uh, groups of women in Orange County forming new organizations to raise money for progressive candidates and then figuring out not just that they were going to raise the money, but they were going to spend their time working to get these candidates elected. Question, though. the Let's just take the House delegation. For the Democrats, it's, a, it's roughly, it's just under 50%. I don't know the exact number, but under 50% are women. So it's a rough, it's getting in the ballpark. That's not the case on the other side of the aisle. Is there a ceiling that's kind of built in politically right now that women are going to run up against as long as one of the parties is so seemingly unappealing to so much of the uh, women involved in politics? Well, certainly, you know, the year of the woman was it's a problematic term, but it definitely wasn't a year of a woman if you're a Republican woman. Um, I think they're going to be, you know, 6% of Republicans in Congress are going to be women. Um, they lost numbers this time around. And um, I think the Republican Party is going to have a hard time uh, keeping women if it doesn't figure out a way to sort of appeal to them beyond its base of women who are never going to go away, right? That the reason why Donald Trump won in 2016 was that there were a lot of suburban white women who voted for Donald Trump. I think, you know, and I haven't read all the polling data, but the polling data suggests that those women have now shifted and voted Democratic because of uh, what Trump represents to them. Not necessarily that the politics of the Republican Party, but the way he talks, the way he has treated women, the way he represents himself, they just, you know, are appalled. And what role did the Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court play, do you think? The, I, I, there's some analysis that says it drove up you know, turnout on both sides. I'm sure it drove. I think that uh, Republican turnout went up after the Kavanaugh because of the Kavanaugh hearings. but And, and Democratic participation was already expected to be up. So would have been really interesting to see, had we not had the Kavanaugh hearings, what the disparity uh, between the two parties would have been like. But I do think for especially uh, women who have been, maybe they were involved with Me Too, but not necessarily involved in taking political action yet um, in terms of canvassing or uh, phone banking, I, I know that uh, he and his comments and the, the way that Christine Blasey Ford was treated inspired many more women to kind of get Involved and for me, the the parallels between you know what was happening um, a little over twenty six years ago with Anita Hill, um, you know there were some there were some really striking similarities in the ways, um, and in fact this this hearing seemed worse to me um, in terms of uh, giving the accuser a fair hearing, um, and I I. And I know a lot of women that I talk to from who come from the similar perspective of me were as angry as I have ever uh, been. The Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings in 1991 indeed had an impact on women in politics. And this is reflected in the Women, Politics, and Activism Project. Here, politician and former member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, Gloria Molina, remembers the Thomas Hill hearings. It had a huge impact 
even though it was a board of super, is like, you know, men watch the World Series when they're on, even though they're working. Somehow they put the TV on. We had the Anita Hill hearings on every single moment. <laughs> we needed to know everything and hear everything. And we're just shocked to see what was going on. Just shocked. Uh, it had a huge impact. And I had a lot of of women on staff and we would all watch this and have this dialogue and found it so hard to believe and how we were going to lose this 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 situation when it was so evident to most of us uh, and it, it was painful and it was hard as well because it was you know uh, African Americans and and the thought you know that that we're challenging an African American on uh, on the Supreme Court, but he was challenged by a woman, and uh, you know we believed her. I mean, we were right there with her every moment of the day. So it was like sitting there and taking, listening and taking the abuse that she was taking for standing up for all the rest of us, and it was a hard thing to watch and 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 painful. Uh, and it reminded us of how, why we're feminists. It reminded us why we had to champion what we had to do. And we still had a long way to go. Even though we were sitting there in positions of power, there was still much that had to be done. Uh, and it was unfortunate that it was happening. And I, I Anita Hill was, is one of my, my champions. And, uh, and she sort of receded back into back. Hardly anyone ever heard about her again, but she is a powerful, and I mean, courageous woman to take the abuse that she took, uh, and to champion all of us as she did. And, uh, and it's a hard thing to do. It's like every single woman who faces sexual harassment to stand up and to be firm and strong. It's happening every day. We see it every single day, a hard thing to do. And, and, uh, and so we need to be champions uh, on behalf of those women. In fact, it seemed to me that the composition of the Judiciary Committee was, was stacked even more in the direction of white, white males representing the Republicans and uh, a more diverse group on the Democratic side. It was much more stark contrast than what we saw back in 1991. Right. 1991, it was basically a bunch of all-white Men. Yeah, they were all white, um, men, and it was controlled it was by the parties. Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, so this time it was controlled by the Republicans, and the voices that you heard and saw um, were very different in their approach. Um, in fact, a couple of those men had been on the committee when Anita Hill um, had been there. So that says it's something. The Thomas Hill hearings had an impact beyond the issue at hand. Thomas's confirmation to the Supreme Court. Here, Catherine Spiller, activist and co-founder of the Feminist Majority Foundation, describes how the Thomas Hill hearings prompted discussion on the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace, and also inspired women to become more involved in politics. It absolutely exploded, um, the interest in the fact that there weren't enough women. And um, we were still doing our whole Feminization of Power campaign at that point, and um, uh, that just absolutely focused people's attention on the need for more women because she was facing an all-male, all-white judiciary committee. And um, so it, it got people very fired up. It also gave a, a, a face to uh, 
the whole issue of sexual harassment. The concept had actually come out of the feminist uh, legal community. Catherine, um, oh my God, um, McKinnon, mm-hmm. I think, had uh, had been the had been developing the theory that sexual harassment was discrimination in the workplace under Title Nine, Title Seven, and in the and in educational institutions under Title IX, and that we had laws in the books to combat it. Uh, but it was not until Anita Hill that you had a light bulb go off over the women's heads in this country that that is what it is. And um, so it absolutely spurred the growth of the movement in so many ways. People got interested in politics. More women were running by then. More women got elected in 92. The hearings were in 91. Women absolutely were determined to get elected. Gender gaps emerged very big to help elect more women. Um, and uh, I think it really, uh, there's no question, it energized the movement in so many different ways. Um, Speaking of that committee and the election and bringing it back to California politics as well, Dianne Feinstein wins, and she is another link back to that 1992 wave, if you want to call it that, that uh, changed uh, the Senate to some degree. She is now the ranking Democrat on that committee, and she had something of a controversial role in that. It did not hurt her in terms of her own reelection, however. What did you make of Dianne Feinstein's role and the significance of her now real, really senior leadership in the Senate for California? Um, well, you know, I think she got, from my perspective, beat up uh, unnecessarily. I don't think, once that got out, she wasn't going to win no matter what she said. I I believe her, that she did not leak the letter. I don't believe she's she's behaved honorably for, you know, over 27 years in the in the Senate, or 26 years in the Senate, um, so I can't imagine that she did that. Nonetheless, she took a beating, and her certainly her Senate opponent here in California used it as an, uh, a way to beat up on her. I'm not sure that that really helped him. Um, uh, he, you know, I think there were, you know, he did better than I think people thought he was going to mm-hmm. do, um, but that may have to do with just the fact that we only, we had two people from the same party running and um the republicans that did vote it's it's unclear what their motives were for who they voted for um right, right. but uh it was like I, more like a traditional primary yeah than it was. yeah but she you know i think it was a stark contrast to at least see a woman there fighting the you know since she's in the minority party she didn't have control if the democrats had been controlled the judiciary i think it would have been a very different hearing um and i think she was frustrated by the inability of the Senate to a Judiciary Committee to really have a fair hearing or what she and others felt would be a fair hearing for Christine Blasey Ford. But electorally, Diane Feinstein wins again. So another six-year term for her. The other key Californian in congressional leadership, even more significant position is Nancy Pelosi, who now stands to become... Once again, Speaker of the House. Do you think she will become Speaker of the House? And what do you think the significance of Nancy Pelosi is as as a woman and as a political leader? Well, I mean, I think you could make an argument that she's one of the most powerful women leaders uh, that we've ever had in this nation. You know, she's been the leader of the 
Democratic Party in the House of Representatives for, you know, 15, 18 years now. Um, and she, you know, helped orchestrate the Democrats, looks like will pro- might pick up 40 seats in the House of Representatives. And certainly part of that was her fundraising and grassroots game that she really um, assisted with. Uh, I think she, um, I think there is some gender involved in the desire for people to try to demonize her and, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer, who, you know, in my opinion, is a more flawed leader than she is, you know, was reelected by the Senate uh, Democrats without any fight. And here is this very powerful woman who, uh, you know, is 79 years old, but has, you know, the political smarts and chops to be a very effective speaker of the House. She was an effective speaker. She, you know, she played a role in the ACA being passed under Obama. Absolutely. Um, certainly she, you know, there was a loss that she had to deal with after that, but she has helped bring the Democrats back um, now. And I think because her own history has roots in activism, that she is going to make sure that the younger, more progressive wing of the party is going to have a voice in leadership and to make sure that the leadership of the Democrats is diverse. And these young um, women, men who were elected um, on a very progressive platform, she's going to make sure they have a voice. And, you know, I think from what I've read, she's going to spend the next two years trying to groom people who can take over because she can't do this forever. But I think, uh, I do think she will eventually be elected Speaker of the House. Yeah. I suspect that she will give it a good two years, organize things for the future, and then not give Trump and the Republicans uh, Nancy Pelosi to kick around in 2020. It's possible that she would use that as a kind of exit strategy. Um, uh, but who knows? Who knows? Um, that brings us, though, to those races you were talking about, putting resources, money into races in congressional districts. And the place that got maybe most of the attention were four or five districts in Orange County, in Southern California, that nationally were seen as key to the Democrats winning. What happened in Orange County? Why did it happen? And what do you think the prospects are for uh, Orange County staying blue? Well, I think two things, right? We, we know that Hillary Clinton won all of those five districts in um, 2016. Even if Republicans won the House seat, she won the presidential race in those districts. So it's clear that um, there are people there willing to vote Democratic. Um, I also think that some of the Republican representatives kept themselves pretty in line with Donald Trump. And a lot of the uh, women who voted for Hillary here who were of a moderate either independence or moderate Republicans decided that they needed a check on him and that they would get involved and take a stand and um, bring their both their money and their uh, physical power of, of organizing to these candidates. Um, two of the seats were open. Um, mm-hmm. 
Daryl Issa's and, and, um, and Royce's seat. And I think, you know, that seemed like a, a potential for pickups. But And Mimi Walters, I think people always had thought was safe, but I think she didn't help herself by, A, not holding any town hall meetings, mm-hmm. um, and B, uh, because she voted with Donald Trump 99% of the time, um, you know, I think constituents were just ready for something different. Um, and, you know, Dana Rohrbacher, not only was he aligned with Donald Trump, but he also was very closely aligned to Russia. And I don't think yes. um, either of those things. And people, he's not, he, nobody, even a lot of Republicans have not been um, big fans of, of, of Dana Rohrbacher. So in some ways that's not as, you know, too surprising either. Um, I think the district here that w- was Royce's was one that I um, seemed like it was till the last bit minute mm-hmm. um, a possible a toss up. So, um, but it was pulled out by Gil Cisneros, and um, you know it'll be an interesting shift in in this district as well here in Fullerton. But you mentioned the margin, and really all the margins were pretty close. So the question is sustainability. Um, you know, we think of the history of Orange County, this bastion of conservatism, the John Birch Society, Richard Nixon, born here, Ronald Reagan's political base was here, but we're a long ways from that now, aren't we? I think we are, and I think, you know, I think demographics are certainly contributing to a more long-term shift, Uh, but I, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if one or two of these flipped back again in two years, but I think that now that Democrats have won those seats, they're not going to want to lose them. I think Republicans are going to fight even harder to um, win them back. But I, I wouldn't put it, you know, I think there's a good possibility that the eventual trend will be that Orange County is now a blue dis- blue area region rather than a region dominated by Republicans. Um, it just may have some back and forths over the next, you know, decade or so. Um, but unless the Republican Party sort of changes its platform, I think those races were also really affected by the Donald Trump factor and the, mm-hmm. the fact that he was really um, uh, going after immigrants in very uh, negative and harsh ways in the, in the very, you know, so that may have helped him in some of the base, you know, races where his base needed to come out. But you know, Orange County is dominated by that demographic that they said was going to make the difference in the election, which is moderate suburban women and just moderate suburban dwellers. And so... And there are many immigrants and children Yeah, and we have a too. large number of independent voters here in, the, in Orange County. And so all of those factors, I think, led to a blue wave. Um, I would say probably across the country, but in particular, the reason why we had a blue wave here in Orange County. I would expect Orange County, like you, to, to still be competitive, though, in the next uh, the next round. Um, those races were very close. Um, you mentioned your class did some interviews. Did they interview people who had actually done uh, political work in Orange County, activist work? Yeah, I had, um, <clears throat> well, I had students who, in the last two years, have um, interview, they interviewed women who are politically engaged on different kinds of levels. So, um, a lot of women who are members of the League of Women Voters, but also, um, are engaged in other political causes, um, gun control, 
um, uh, mental health issues. Uh, and I had uh, one woman who interviewed a young woman who's been very, very involved in the Me Too movement here in Orange County. Here is Kelsey Brewer from the Women, Politics, and Activism Project. And then the Me Too movement was, it was somewhat difficult for me. I've come to terms with some of it. Um, it was very, it's, it still is, it's still a very privileged movement. It was started by women who had the privilege and the capital and the resources to raise their hand and say, yeah, I was sexually assaulted or sexually harassed by this person. And they didn't have an extreme detriment to their own livelihood, where there's the majority of people who experience um, sex-based violence are not in positions of power or authority. They're maids and regular fast food workers where if they say, my boss, you know, assaulted me, they lose their job because they have no power and no access to a system that, one, believes them and two, supports them. Um, so I struggled with it in that sense. And then I also struggled with the conflation of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Because um, having experienced both, they're both awful and no one should ever have to go through them and they're terrible, but they also are very, very different things. Um, and so I struggled with conflating the two of those in a lot of ways. And I've mostly gotten over that because um, I think most people have started to realize being sexually harassed and being raped are two different things. Um, and have tried to start treating them as if they're two different things. Um, but what I loved about it is that finally we were having somewhat of a genuine conversation about the pervasiveness of sex-based violence um, in this country. And I think if nothing else, it showed how widespread it was and how deep it was and how people that we have exalted for years as being wonderful, awesome human beings had done terrible, awful things to people. And then another woman was a young woman who um, had always been politically engaged, but I don't think to the level who started canvassing, writing letters, spending her weekends. Um, <clears throat> ever since uh, Donald Trump got elected, marching in both women's marches. Michelle Antonessi is one of our former students. She's become a political activist. Here she describes the motivation for her work. I've met so many people since the 2016 election that are like, I never even paid attention until this happened. Like, that was not me. Like, I've always paid attention. It's to the point where, like, it's almost a problem. But for me, Donald Trump being elected was like, okay, it's not enough to pay attention anymore. It's not enough to, like, occasionally campaign for a candidate that you like. It's not enough to give a little bit of money to a candidate you that you like. Like, it's, you know... This is like all hands on deck. Like you need to figure out how to um, help stop what was pretty evident to me during the election was was going to happen. So for me, that's what what Donald Trump's election did was it took it it flipped a switch in me that was like, okay, this can't be something that you do occasionally anymore. Like this is you know I I don't work in politics. I'm not employed in any sort of political activism but um most of my time not in work is about politics because of donald trump for better or worse i mean for the last two years the interviews that we've been doing for the project have spoken 
In fact, that's probably been the most striking thing that I knew was going to be a part of the project, but I didn't really anticipate the level, which is because Hillary Clinton was running for president while I was starting this project and she lost to Donald Trump and women's political engagement has been on people's minds constantly, basically since 2015, has been a part of the national conversation. And then if you throw in the Me Too movement, um, you know, women have been fired up and angry for three years. And those current contexts wove their way into, I would say, the majority of our interviews. I mean, we definitely asked a question about Hillary's loss or her run, uh, but a lot of people would make comparisons like to the Me Too movement today when they were talking about sexual harassment in the past. Here is an example. Marianne Guido recalls the kind of sexual harassment she faced as a woman while serving on the Irvine City Council. Well, probably the most specific one um, had to do with uh, the League of Cities, which were city elected city council people from all over the county, chose elected officials to be on regional boards. And I had put my name in to be on the California Coastal Commission. So I went to these monthly meetings of all my peers, mostly men, and the um, mayor of Garden Grove, a man, had been elected then to be the main representative to, of Orange County um, elected officials to be on the California Coastal Commission, but they need an alternate. So I put my name in to be the alternate and I was elected. So I was really excited. I loved the whole idea of keeping the coastline open to the public. And the, uh, the man, the Garden Grove mayor who had not been at that meeting when I got appointed his alternate said, oh, I want to take you out. Let's get a drink. So he took me out for a drink and talked about, you know, the way in which we would alternate being uh, representatives to the Coastal Commission. And one thing led to another, and he suggested, you know, I uh, go home with him. And I said no, and he just turned on me. He just called me a bitch and, a, you know, whatever uh, men say. And at the next meeting, he used his influence to get me off of the alternate position. So I served about three weeks on the Coastal Commission. <laughs> but that kind of stuff, you know. You know, it sounds like Harvey Weinstein, but it's it's so common. It's It's everywhere. It's really, it was very, very prominent everywhere. Um, most of the, yeah. And women had to put up with that constantly uh, and to get, to get anywhere. Um, the, a lot of women spoke about if they participated in the Women's March, what that was about and how that was different than what they had done or seen before. Um, so, I mean, even Republican women who we interviewed before um, Clinton lost talked about the significance, even if they wouldn't vote for her themselves, of having a woman as the, you know, as the nominee for a major party. Um, and so the current context has almost been inescapable. Um, and I think it has driven my students' interest in wanting to interview, especially uh, young women like themselves who have gotten more politically engaged 
as a result of what's happened in the last two years. And certainly statistics, you know, show that young young people voted in numbers that we've never seen before also in this election, not just women, but young people in general. Um, and, and Americans, right? We've never had over 100 right. million, million people uh, vote in a midterm election before this year. But the, the youth vote, uh, you know, I, if you want to say one of the other things that I think tipped the scale was the youth vote. Young people don't vote in midterm elections. Young people don't vote in the same numbers as older Americans, but they voted in a much higher percentage this time. And if that maintains, then I do think it spells trouble for Republicans, not just here, but across the country. Do you think there is a women's political agenda coming into view, or is it a subset of what we would call the progressive agenda? Your your research project prior to this looked at uh, state sponsorship of child care mm-hmm. in California. I didn't hear a lot about child care in this race, but I did hear about health care and about access to education and some of these issues. Do you think that some of these issues will be branded as women's issues by the next go around, or will they simply be part of a larger progressive agenda that uh, Democrats are going to push for? I, I mean, I think they're going to be, a, they've always been part of a larger progressive agenda. I think that there will be louder voices uh, and voices of women who can speak about it from a different perspective. Right. I think pay equity is going to be something that the uh, women in Congress are going to pay attention to. Um, while in climate change is not a, a, you know, identified as a women's issue, I do see a lot of these younger women who are in Congress wanting to take a lead on that because they're the ones who are going to be living through, uh, you know, the 70 and 80 year old men in Congress aren't going to see the main effects of climate change. It's going to be that younger body who are in their 30s who are just elected to Congress who are really, you know, going to have to have children, raise children, um, and see these the dramatic effects of climate change. Um, but, you know, I think there, there may be a different push for some of these more, you know, child care issues like that. Just because women bring a different perspective doesn't mean that men don't support those policies, but there may be um, women who speak about them from a different angle, push for them a little harder, perhaps fight for them to be on the top of the agenda, not just as part of the, you know. Yeah, and think about an issue like college tuition close to home here yeah. or at a university where uh, there are fees and they're tough for students and there are loans that students take out. When more than 50% of students nationwide are women, it does take on a, a little bit more of a, an, an urgency in terms of women's issue. Women are graduating and they're saddled with debt. Right. More women are graduating than men from college. So there may be some conversation in that direction. Uh, just thinking about California, uh, we've just finished two terms from Jerry Brown as governor, and he is almost done with uh It'll be a total of three terms. <laughs> We're going back to his 1970s heyday. What do you think Jerry Brown has meant to this state, and what condition does he leave the state in, and what sorts of things might we expect from Gavin Newsom as he comes into office? Well, I mean, I think Jerry Brown liked to be somebody who couldn't be pigeonholed into one characterization. Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of the uh, finances of the state were in much better shape than we were when he 
got in eight years ago, but when he came in, we were, you know, in the middle of a recession. And uh, so in some ways that he had to take that as a priority so that we could prepare, you know, as an educator in the public education system of California, I'm, I don't think he's been that friendly to uh, higher public higher education. Um, you know, it was really the legislature who's fought to keep our budgets at the level that they should be um, and tried to prevent raises in tuition and such. Um, I'm not saying that he was a foe of public education, but I don't think I would say he was necessarily a champion of funding higher education. Um, certainly climate change, mm-hmm. he's um, embraced and you know has become not just a national leader, but a world leader in terms of talking about climate change, and um, rightly so. Um, and so I think that Gavin Newsom um, <clears throat> is going to come in and certainly continue. I, I, I don't doubt that climate change will be one of the number one issues that uh, Newsom puts forward. His style is very different than Jerry Brown's. I think he will push for some more progressive um, items on the agenda. We now have a supermajority, the Democrats do, in both the House and the Senate in Sacramento. So should they be able to agree on things with Newsom, you know, Democrats can kind of pass whatever they want. Um, So it'll just be, what are the things we can afford? You know, I think he's, you know, going to have to figure out the budget and what to do with it. But we, you know, we do have a nice um, rainy day fund, thanks to to Governor Brown. Income inequality, homelessness, these are things that affect our students too, right? Yeah. Uh, college affordability, um, education in general, he has said, is on his agenda. But I don't really know whether that means, you know, primary and secondary education, or whether that also includes higher education. I'm right. not sure that what where that's going to go. Um, but certainly, he does inherit the fifth largest economy in the world and also inherits Brown's efforts to position California in terms of the global fight against climate change. So it's going to be fascinating to see how he takes that up. Um, what sorts of things do you expect to see uh, gazing into your crystal ball, as we historians are so good at doing? <laughs> What do you expect to see between now and 2020? Uh, do you expect uh, greater women's participation? Uh, will it be dependent on the sorts of shenanigans we see from the White House or what happens on Twitter feeds uh, from I don't, the president? I don't, or is there something deeper going on here? I think there's something deeper going on. I think a lot of women, something clicked. Um, I think for some young women who sat out, there were not just in California but across the country, those who had been maybe Bernie supporters and just assumed that Hillary would win. Um, I heard of all kinds of young people who didn't vote, and I think they now are realizing what can happen when you don't participate in your civic responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I was a you know betting person, I'm, I'm not going to tell you who I think the Democratic candidate for president is because I, I, I think it's too early and there's too much to sift through the 20-some-odd people that have expressed interest. I would um, say that I I think women's participation is going to stay at the level. I don't think that's going to fall off. I think something clicked for women when Hillary lost and Trump won, both because of the fact that a woman lost, but I think just as much for what Trump represents, somebody who has been accused of uh, sexual harassment, who... 
talks and treats people of color and women uh, with disdain and um, and really doesn't represent what, especially for Democratic women, uh, you know, they want in a, in a leader. And I think now that women are making strides, they're not going to stop, you know, those 42,000 women who expressed interest in running. Obviously, they didn't all run in 2018, but I bet a good chunk more of them will run in 2020. Some of those women who lost in the primary, who just literally threw their hat in having no political experience, might come back for round two. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, I'm hopeful that we will move the trend so that we can crack that 25% sort of cap that we've had in national political representation, move women toward parity. Uh, it, it's still going to take a long time to get to parity, but if we can make a sig- significant stride in 2020, that would be really amazing. I suspect that the centennial of the 19th Amendment will also focus attention on women's right to vote and maybe make even more people consider you know what it means to exercise the right to vote. I think in 2019 and 2020 that will be there will be many many conversations from the passage the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th amendment to the ratification of the 19th amendment and that whole entire year of um, celebration and reflection will um, bring it into the national conversation. I, I, I mean, it's already part of the national conversation. I'm just going to think it's going to kind of continue. Um, and your work and your exhibition and the work your students are doing will be part of that conversation. Yes, and well. we will definitely have a section in that exhibition that looks at what's happening today. Great. Thank you once again, Dr. Natalie Fusakis, for joining us on Outspoken. Thank you so much. And that's Outspoken, episode 13. Our thanks to our guest, Natalie Fusakis. For producer, Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time.